Good evening and welcome back to the second session of Shemitah, uh, Contemporary Shemitah, Challenges and Compliance, Relevance and Rebirth with Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Zukir. We ask that those of you joining us here on Zoom, if it strikes you as something you, you might at all be interested in, you are more than welcome to turn your camera on so we can see each other's faces and uh, have things feel a little bit more like a good old-fashioned classroom share. Um, and if you are on Zoom, we do ask that you stay muted unless uh, you mean to be talking and sharing sound with us just to minimize background noise. If you're joining us on Facebook Live, hi, we're glad you're here. Feel free to put questions and comments for Rabbi Zuckier in the comment section below the video. I'll bring them over here. And if you're with us on Zoom, you're of course welcome to use the chat uh, as much or as little as you'd like. Rabbi Zakir will be sharing his source sheet on the screen for your convenience. And I will also place a link in the chat if you want to open it up in another window, make it obnoxiously huge. I'm with you on that. Um, and if you're joining us on Drisha Live, uh, there isn't really an interactive component, but we're still glad that you're here learning with us. And without further ado, Rabbi Zakir. Thank you so much, Noah. And uh, pleasure to be back learning with everyone here. Um, so just to frame where we're at in our sequence, last week we discussed some of the vision of Shemitah overall, the idea of both the land lying fallow, people releasing their claim to the land, allowing things to grow, allowing everyone to have the food, how that shows, uh, that demonstrates God's ownership of the land, that also uh, creates a sense of equality among people. There are also are uh, other economic sides to Shemitah in terms of canceling debts and letting the slaves go free in the seventh year. Um, so that, that wonderful biblical vision. And then we also, uh, we also started considering some of the challenges to Shemitah. And the truth is, those challenges go back to the time of the Torah. The Torah itself says, well, what if you're nervous that you won't be able to do it? What will we eat in the seventh year? The Torah itself is already noting uh, that this is a potential worry. And people are, are promised uh, God's blessing to be able to overcome that. But we saw how throughout history, this has been a challenge. And uh, the, the place where it's the, the challenge maybe has been emphasized the most has been over the last 140 years or so since the renewal of the Yishuv in, uh, in the land of Israel. And today, we're going to look at specifically that, that challenge, the challenge of how can one keep all of the restrictions, the restrictions on the land, both the prohibition against planting during the Shemitah year and the prohibition against hoarding and doing business with the, that which grows on the land, which, uh, as we noted, really affects two different years' crops, right? The crop that uh, grows during the seventh year, you can't harvest and keep for yourself. You just take what you can eat, and then others, uh, anyone can eat, the poor and the rich equally. And also, you can't plant in the seventh year, which means that things that are uh, annual crops, let's say vegetables, uh, you won't be able to produce for the eighth year unless they happen to grow on their own. So there's really two years worth of, of challenge. And as we saw, um, you know, this, uh, this, this is a real tricky thing when renewing the issue. So today we're going to look at the responses to that and uh, through, especially through the prison of, prism of the debate over the heter mechira, the, uh, the permission 
the controversial permission to sell the land and circumvent some of these prohibitions. We'll also talk about some alternative methods, and we'll talk about whether the 1880s are the same as today or not. But uh, that's that's where we're coming in, right? So if, if uh, Shemitah has this bold vision and there are some challenges, we're going to see the question of compliance, the challenges and the compliance uh, as have been carried out in the land of Israel over the past 140 years. Now, there's a bunch of different ways of doing this topic. Really, you could break this down and spend, I don't know, 10 shirim on this. Um, we're going to try to squeeze it all into one shear um, and focus you know, at 20,000 feet on some of the larger issues without getting to every last detail. Um, also, there's a question of whether you want to do this more in a more historical vein or more in a halachic vein, focusing on the traditional sources. Um, you know, we'll throw in a little bit of history as we go along, but the, the emphasis here is, uh, is going to be on the halachic sources and the principles themselves rather than the history, although, of course, the history is uh, very much relevant. Um, so just the very short version, um, the there was uh, returnees, well, there, there always was some Jewish presence in the land of Israel. It became very small at some points, um, but uh, there seems to have been a continuous presence uh, in, in the modern period in Yerushalayim, known as the Yishuv Hayashan, the old, the old guard or the old settlement in, in Yerushalayim. But towards the end of the 19th century, uh, as Zionism of various sorts, religious Zionism and secular Zionism began taking root, there were a variety of of uh, returns to Zion in, you know, from uh, the 1870s and forward, but really uh, the, the late 1880s is when it reached a critical mass. And uh, these people uh, started building settlements. So if you lived in Yerushalayim, you know, you really couldn't, you weren't farming much. You were a pious person who was getting supported from abroad. But in the 1880s, uh, there was a real attempt to build a sustainable Jewish economy in the land of Israel. And that's you know an important and a wonderful thing um, in light of the uh, the mitzvah of settling the land, um, uh, but it creates a challenge in terms of shemitah. If shemitah is is difficult, you know even it, under any circumstances, it's especially difficult when you're trying to start up a new uh, agricultural society in the land. And if you want people to invest in you, if you want to build business relationships, how will this be possible? So this is what led to the heter mechira which is very controversial back in the 1880s, originally put forward by uh, Rav Yitzhak Elkanan Specter. Um, it was really the initiative of uh, the Edmund Baron de Rothschild who killed his rabbi, who appealed to Rav Yitzhak Elkanan Specter, who gave the heter. It was opposed by the old guard, the rabbis in Yerushalayim, the Yishuv Hayashan. And going forward, uh, go, and, and some Europe, opposed by some European rabbis as well, going forward, uh, a couple of Shemitahs later, in the early 20th century, Rav, Rav Cook was uh, the great defender. And a few decades after that, the Chazon Ish was the great opponent uh, of the Heter Mechira. So that's, that's the extent of the history we'll talk about now. We'll mention a couple of things in passing, but um, from here and forward, we're gonna really focus on the halachic sources here. So there are a few important questions that come up when one tries to figure out, can it work to circumvent uh, this uh, prohibition of Shemitah. One very important question is, and uh, I'll, I'll now share uh, share the screen, and then you'll see the see the header with this question on it. Is uh, does Shemitah today apply on a biblical level or on a rabbinic level? And the reason for this is it's really um, multifold. First of all, uh, to the extent that we 
apply loopholes, it's a lot easier. We're a lot happier applying loopholes on matters that are rabbinic in nature rather than biblical in nature. That's sort of a general principle, number one. Number two, something that's rabbinic, and especially if there's a couple of, a couple of factors that are sort of knocked down a peg from biblical to rabbinic level, um, you can say, well, it's rabbinic or it's a double rabbinic law, and it's a case of great need, we can be lenient, which we're not, we don't really do for deoraisis. So for biblical law. So these, this is a very important question. And this question goes back well before uh, the late 19th century. It goes back to really the Gemara and the Rishonim and the Akronim who discussed this. So let's first look at some sources on this question uh, as to whether Shemitah is Dorais or Dorabanan. And as always, feel free to jump in with questions in the chat or with a hand or something. Um, but if not, we're going to go, go in to these sources. Um, so the Sefer Atruma. One of the Rishonim, uh, focusing in his section at Hilchos Eretz Yisrael, he says, says in terms of uh, the sanctity of the land of Israel, it is not in effect today as regards uh, Truma and Maser, as regards the different uh, items that come from the sanctity of the land. This goes back to an uh, earlier dispute in the Gemara, uh, both the Kedusha Rishona and the Kedusha Shnia, both when Yoshua, Joshua, entered the land and captured it. And when Ezra entered the land and was given permission to settle it, did either or both of those uh, create permanent sanctity or not? Sefer Truma says there's no permanent sanctity. It, maybe it had sanctity when, when they, they were there, and when they left, the sanctity left. Lo tema we call makam alacha ahokatushas Ezra Latrumo maser kayemes laolam afizmana said. Don't say that Ezra's uh, uh, sanctification of the land is still applicable. El bismana zebatla ve'en chiyav benatar lehafresh truma umaser. There's no biblical obligation to take off Truman Maser. Rabbinically, you still should. Um, but uh, really, according to Torah law, the, the sanctification isn't in place. Okay, what does that have to do with Shemitah? So he says, Since there's no biblical law for Truman Maser, the same should go for Shemitah, Shemitah, um, right? They're basically the same. They're all mitzvahs, atulios, ba'aretz, land-dependent commandments. And if Shemitah is only rabbinic, in a case where it's also karka hagai, it's also owned by a Gentile, so that itself, uh, then there wouldn't even be a rabbinic obligation. So according to the Sefer Atruma, uh, it's, you know, nowadays, any uh, Gentile with land in Israel, you can, uh, you can, it's totally permitted to uh, get, uh, to buy things from them. Even if a Jew plants, uh, plants crops in the land of Israel in the Shemitah year, that would only be rabbinically prohibited. On the other hand, and this is controversial. People disagree about the Rambam's view, but at least on this factor, maybe we can we can say the Rambam argues the Sefer Truma. If not, there are others who argue as well. The Rambam says uh, things that the original conquest, right, Oli Mitzrayim, the time of Moshe, but then Yoshua coming up from Egypt and entering the land. That was the early, the first sanctification. They were exiled, the destruction of the first base on Mikdash, and the sanctity left. The first uh, sanctification of the land was done by conquest, so it can be undone by conquest. But when those, uh, those came up from exile, meaning Ezra and all the other uh, Jews who came up from Babylonia, they, they uh, settled, they took hold of some of the land. They took on this permanent sanctification. They left some areas behind that weren't uh, conquered the second time around, and that 
maybe the poor can subsist on those for Shemitah. There are some exceptions that the Ramah points to, but overall, the land of Israel was sanctified and uh, in the time of Ezra, when Ezra entered the land, not through conquest, but through permission uh, from the Persian monarchs, was that that created sanctity forever. So again, the Ramam's view itself may be more complicated, but at least in terms of this, is the sanctity of the land for in general for these mitzvahs of Kudosh Ba'aretz, biblical or rabbinic? The Ramam says it's biblical. Sefer Trumo says it's rabbinic. Uh, there are many other Rishonim on both sides, but that's one debate. That's one question, uh, one question here. And uh, Gabriel, you're correct. The Ramam here doesn't spell it out. Elsewhere, uh, the Ramah has this principle, which uh, I think has been referred to as the pen is mightier than the sword. Getting permission to settle the land, that can't be overturned. Whereas conquering the land, that's uh, conquest is by might. Someone else is stronger, they can override that. But getting permission, the permission can never be undone. That, that seems to be the Ramah's reasoning, not in this source, but elsewhere. Now, there's a whole other question. Let's say, you know, uh, well, regardless of what you say about the first question, even if the sanctity of the land is biblical in general, let's say for Truma and Maser, the tithes of various sorts, maybe for Shemitah it would be different. Why? Well, maybe there's a connection between Shemitah and Yovel. And since Yovel today doesn't apply, right? You haven't heard controversies about Yovel. Uh, we'll talk about that more in a second. Since Yovel doesn't apply, maybe Shemitah doesn't apply. This is a controversial issue. Source number three from the Sifra seems very clearly to say there's no connection in this direction. It says, right, the seventh year, Shemitah applies, even though there's no Yovel, like nowadays there's no Yovel, we don't practice Yovel. I'll talk about why in a second, but Shemitah still does apply. But if there's no Shemitah and there's no Shemitah, there can't be Yovel. That makes a lot of sense because the whole point of Yovel is it's after seven Shemitahs. So you can't count up to a Yovel without having Shemitah. But there's no dependence in the other direction. There's no Yovel. That doesn't affect Shemitah at all. Every seven years, you still have Shemitah. That, that's the view in the Sifra. However, the Yerushalmi quotes Rebbe's view, Yehuda Nasi, which seems to say the opposite. Rebbe Ober, Shnei Shemitin, there's two Shemitahs, right? Two things that are called Shemitah, Shemitah v'yovel, right? The every seven year and, and the every 50 years, those are the two Shemitahs, and there's a connection between them. Bishasha Yovel Noheg, HaShemitah Noheg, I guess we did very Torah. When the Yovel applies, Shemitah also applies on a biblical level. Haskua Yovlos, Noheg as Shemitah midivrayan. As soon as the Yovel no longer applies, Shemitah also doesn't apply Biblically, it only applies rabbinically. Now, uh, why does the Yovel not apply nowadays? Longer discussion, but it basically is uh, dependent on the idea of bias kulchem. Um, you need to have the entire Jewish people, understood as the majority of the Jewish people, living in the land of Israel in order for Yovel to apply. Now, does that condition apply to Shemitah? That's our question, right? It's not explicitly, the Gemara doesn't explicitly tie that condition to Shemitah, but if Yovel is conditioned on having a majority of people in the land, and Shemitah depends on Yovel, then indirectly, Shemitah also depends on having a majority of the Jewish people in the land of Israel. Today, although uh, Israel has the plurality of, of uh, Jews in the world, more, more than any other country, it does not have the majority, even if the country, Israel, uh, will have the majority of Jews in a few years, which it might, gets a little tricky because some parts of the, of the country, Israel, are not part of the land of Israel in terms of sanctity, like for Eilat, for example, um, you know, famously uh, a city of sin, or I don't know about that, but uh, it's uh, Eilat, and uh, that's outside of the boundaries of, of uh, classically the land of Israel. The, it could be that the state extends those boundaries. That's a very fraught issue. So even if, you know, uh, a couple of Shemitahs from now, a majority of people who identify as Jews 
live in the country Israel, that may or may not affect this, but it does complicate things. Right? And there's also the question of how do you, you know, do people self-identify as Jewish in the surveys? How does that count uh, in terms of halachically? A lot of complicating factors. Let's assume certainly for now, uh, this Shemitah, the majority of Jews do not live in uh, Eretz Yisrael. And for that reason, based on what this Yerushalmi says, um, according to Rebbe, Rebbe Huda Nasi, a very influential uh, halachic uh, thinker, uh, is, uh, is that Yovel doesn't apply, therefore Shemitah doesn't apply biblically, it only applies rabbinically. Now there's another version of Rebbe's teaching, uh, which comes up in source number five, um, where he ties Shemitah of land to Shemitah of money, but maybe not to Yovel, so that's maybe a little more complicated, but many poskims say we follow uh, Rebbe as formulated as we saw just a minute ago, that because there's no Yovel, there's no Shemitah either. I see Jason's asking, how can we be sure that Israel doesn't have a majority of Jews? Right, polling is inaccurate, we can't be sure, but I think everyone's best guess at this point is that we're not at the majority. Again, come back in seven or 14 years and it's gonna start getting more complicated. Um, so maybe that will shift the needle on some of these issues. We'll see every, you know, it's, uh, we're, uh, we'll see as it, as it goes along, we'll mention in passing, even though we're not focusing on the history, that this issue is really a different issue every seven years, it gets revisited. Some of the details change, both in terms of the reality on the ground and in terms of the different processes available. So that will be one more factor uh, when we get there. Okay, so uh, that's some of the earlier sources. Now the Beis Halevi, um, Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik, but not the one you know, his great-grandfather, um, the Beis Halevi uh, wrote on this, and he was of the view, even though you know, he sort of says that Shemitah nowadays is Doraisa, even though given the reason we saw, either of two reasons, we might say it's rabbinic, either the sanctity of the land of Israel is only rabbinic, so then Shemitah is only rabbinic, or uh, or that uh, Shemitah is tied to Yovel and Yovel is only rabbinic, so Shemitah is only rabbinic, but either of those two reasons. The Beis Halevi rejects both of these and says that it effectively, it functions like a Doraisa, but his argument is gonna be a little interesting. So let's take a look. The requirement, the obligation of Shemitah stems from those who came up from exile in the time of Ezra, what they did. They accepted upon themselves to keep Shemitah. What is he talking about? Well, if you knew Sefer Nehemiah, you'll know, because he's going to quote it in a second. There's no Yovel, and yet the people accepted Shemitah anyway. So it's not rabbinic. It's from the time of Ezra. Ezra is a book of Tanakh, not Torah, but it's Nach. Nach is called Divrei Kabbalah, right? Laws that come out of Nach that aren't that many are called Divrei Kabbalah, words of the tradition. They're stronger generally than a Durabanan, usually not quite a Daraisa, but we'll see. So he quotes the Pasuk The people all commit and sign on the following, this is the members of Yerushalayim, the community that Ezra and Nehemiah were going to, and they committed with an oath, a bunch of things, including, uh, we will, nitosh means to sort of uh, release the seventh year and all the things that people hold from others, where that presumably is referring to both the land and the loans. So they promised they'd keep Shemitah, they, they promise with an oath to give Shemitah. Right, so that should have the level of a biblical law. Why? Number one, it's Divrei Kabbalah, which a little controversial is that. They're abundant somewhere in the middle. But he's saying Divrei Kabbalah, something from, we learned out from Nevi'im and Suvim, will treat it like a, like a Dora It's a communal oath. So if you make an oath, with the community, you can't really undo that. 
and Shmuel said they're Arisa. Oaths are, are biblical and they're binding on all generations. You can't be any more lenient. So even if technically it's not the Arisa, it's different Kabbalah, it has the level of stringency of a Arisa. Now, just this is not from the Beis Halevi, but just for funsies, uh, I had a Mecha Gedola, a major protest against the Heter Mechira. There are many of these Pashkavilian things, you know, signs people put up um, every seven years, going back 140 years. So uh, if you ever want, uh, you know, Google Pashkavilim uh, Shemitah, you can get a bunch of them. But this is just a nice one, nice, uh, nice coloration there too, um, from 1910, so a good, good while ago. So that was the that was the uh, the Beis Halevi, one of the major opponents of the Heter Mechira, who was saying it's actually biblical and you can't come up with leniencies because it has all the stringencies. Now, interestingly enough, the Chazon Ish, who himself also didn't like the Heter Mechira, actually disagreed with the Beis Halevi. He actually thinks it's rabbinic as well, and he responds. Right, he quotes the Beis Halevi. He says it's biblical, um, fine, but he says Karma Dvarim. We look in Nehemiah, It's clear it's not like they were trying to come up with some new law. The people were not being responsible, weren't keeping the halacha. So they said, they, okay, let's make everyone make an oath to keep people more serious. We don't really do that nowadays, but in the time of Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah, they did that. But they weren't making the oath to like change the law and make it more stringent. They were just promising to keep the law as such. And the law as such was only Durabanan because this was the time of Ezra. Whatever the details were, it was only Durabanan, right? There's no, there's no Yovel. Um, so it's only Durabanan. So they were only making a, a promise to keep it on the level of a Durabanan. Any leniencies that the rabbis come up with because major loss or for, need, for communal needs, those can obviously still work. They weren't foregoing any leniencies. They were just making a promise to keep the law as such. So interesting, the Chazunish. Uh, also holds that Shemitah is Darabanan, despite the fact that he doesn't like the sale. Um, we'll see, we, won't, we actually won't get into the details of this, but the Chazanish is actually fairly lenient on many things involving the laws of Shemitah. Um, the thing he's very stringent on is he doesn't like the Hetermachir, he doesn't like the sale. But he actually has many leniencies which really are necessary um, if you, right, he lived in Israel for the last few decades of his life, and he was the leader of the Haredi community. The Haredi community needed to have a way of living during Shemitah including some farmers, right, from the Poliagudah. There were some Haredi farmers. If you're too stringent, people won't be able to keep it. So he ended up, because he was anti-Mechira, he had other leniencies that allowed people to do it. And, and a lot of that was based on the fact that his view was that uh, Shemitah was, uh, was Derabanan. So until this point, we've been talking about, is Shemitah nowadays Derabanan or Derabanan? The main view seems to be it's Derabanan, Beis Halevi, and uh, the Nitziv actually also thinks it's Derabanan. But um, here's a view that's really out there. And we'll take a look from Rav Zerachi Halevi, the Balamor quoted in the Sefer Atrumos. The same Sefer Atrumos we saw before quotes the Balamor, uh, one of the important Rishonim. And he says, um, It doesn't apply nowadays. What does that mean? Shemitah doesn't apply nowadays. How does he get there? In the time of the Gemara, There were major courts that would sanctify the month. Right, that's clear in the Gemara and Mishnah. Probably, maybe, they also sanctified the year. Every year they'd say, this is year one in the Shemitah, year two in the Shemitah, year seven in the Shemitah, okay, this year is Shemitah. And then they go up to, to 50, they say, okay, this year is Yovel. They would do the count in these courts. The same way that they would count up months, they would count up years. We don't have courts that can sanctify the year anymore. We don't have a Sanhedrin um, or Smicha or whatever exactly 
uh, right? They, they seem to do the Seifi moon after the Sanhedrin, but they had some court that was authorized to do it through Smicha. Velo uh, Chodesh, we don't have, right, we don't, they don't sanctify years or months anymore. Yovel is totally dead. It's not like it used to be that Yovel was kept there abundant, but it was sort of kept alive by the courts. Yovel is nothing. There's no Yovel anymore. So Shemitah is gone, is gone as well. It sort of gets destroyed along with it. The Divrei Rebbe, according to the Rebbe, we saw this last week, Rebbe in the Yishami there, they're, they're interdependent. So there's no Yovel, there's no, Yovel, uh, there's no Shemitah either. And we saw, of course, echoes of this uh, today as well. But now, Take it a step further. Right, that's according to Rebbe. Okay, but Rebbe's one view. There's other views. What about according to the Chachamim? Those who argue with Rebbe, even according to the Chachamim, Hashmitim Tzrichem Kiddush Bezdin. He comes up with this novel view that you actually need the court to sanctify the Shemitah year. I mean, the pasuk does say You need to sanctify the fiftieth year, and presumably you need to do the same thing for the seventh year. The Shemitah, the courts would need to sanctify the Shemitah year. And if you don't do that, it won't take effect. And he says, just like Yovel needs Kiddush Bezdin, so too, we'd say the same thing by Shemitah. So this is his view. And therefore, um, and therefore there's no Shemitah nowadays. It's not Doraisa, and it's not Darabanan either. Right? If the courts were still doing it, going through the motions, then it would at least be Darabanan. But the courts aren't doing that anymore um, because we can't. We don't have courts authorized to do that. Therefore, there's no Shemitah. Does that mean you shouldn't do it at all? No, it's probably better to. But uh, I think people have referred to this as a milas chasidus. It's like preferable. If you want to be, uh, if you want to go above and beyond, you can keep Shemitah. But there's no obligation, not biblical and not rabbinic. Now, people don't generally rely on this as a main view, but it is sometimes in the background, right? Some people even think it's not uh, applicable at all. So maybe that gives a little more room for leniencies. I see John asked, what about the modern Sanhedrin, um, right? Uh, Rav Steinzeltz, uh, Zal was one of the, well, I think the Nasi, they established it. I don't think that caught on enough uh, for it to work. By definition, the Rambam, who's the author of the view that you can renew the Sanhedrin, says it needs to get signed off by all the rabbis, or at least the majority of the rabbis in the land of Israel, which that certainly did not have. So, you know, I mean, too bad for all the people involved, but that was a failed attempt. Um, and Alana says, it seems weird to cancel Shemitah based on the Balmor's assumption. Of what was done. Yeah, so the Balamor, it's it is odd that he goes with this F sharp. Um, he doesn't seem to have backing for it, but uh, it is a view. He seems to, right, uh, at least the way the Sefer Trumos quotes him, he says, you know, Rosrachia says he poskined that it doesn't apply nowadays. Now it could be because he was partially leaning on Rebbe's view, right? Rebbe seems to say it doesn't apply, arguably. And even for the Chachamim, maybe you need the counted investment. But yeah, it's a fair point, and maybe that's part of why uh Postkin don't primarily rely on. Uh, the Balmore. I saw I saw one article, like a law journal article on this, where it said, no, why didn't Rav Cook rely on the Balamore? It would have been so much easier. But I think it, you know, it seems like the Balamore is a bit of a stretch and it's a minority view really out there. You'd much rather work within the mainstream, cobble together a few mainstream views to have a leniency rather than go out on a limb and uh, follow the most extreme lenient position. So there are these three views, at least in theory, right? Uh, there's more than three if you want to get into the details, but basically functions more or less biblically functions rabbinically, or doesn't apply at all. And what's the practice on the ground? So um, uh, the Rambam in, in the Hilchos Trumos says that, um, right, so th th there's now a separate issue, which is like, regardless of, uh, right, what was the practice? It's a good question. I think the main view is the Rabbanon, but we'll put that on the side. There's another question now, which is, 
so let's say the land belongs to a Gentile. Not that you sold it to a Gentile or anything, you know, anything involving the Heter per se, but let's say in the 16th century, right? There was a group of Jews who came to Tzfat in the 16th century, um, including Shulchan Aruch and Shlomo uh, Akabetz and all sorts of other interesting people. Uh, the Mari Beirav, that's where they actually restarted Smicha for the first time, John. Um, and um, what did they do in that time? So they relied on the Rambam. And the, the Rambam, and the Rambam is talking about a non-Jew who owns land who has fruits. A non-Jew buys land in Israel from another non-Jew, not from Jews per se. Um, he grows crops. It's totally, it finishes its process. And then he puts it in a storehouse, meaning all stages of the process uh, are involved a non-Jew. They're totally exempt. You have to give Truma and Maser on your crops, not a Gentile's crops. This is what the Jews in the 16th century, like the Kesef Mishnah, also known as the Beis Yosef, also known as the Shulchan Aruch, did when they came to Tzfat, they needed to eat food. But, you know, they, if they were going to grow food, it would be complicated with Truma and Maser and Shemitah for that matter, what did they do? And so the Kesemisha says, everyone holds like the Rambam, that if a non-Jew's land processing the whole state, all the stages, that there's no chi of truma and masa, you don't need to worry about that. Um, right? And no one argued on this. And then he says, well, someone got up and said he wanted to disagree. He said, well, maybe we can mock me against the Rambam, we should take off truma and Maser. And he's trying to entice other people to take off truma and Maser. Uh, and the Kesemisha, the Shulchan Aruch is very upset about this and we need to stop him. And then they made a takana that no one should listen to him and they're all in cheirem if they listen to him. So a very strong view for many years, hundreds of years, uh, right, going back at least to the 16th century, the strong minog was if the land belongs to a non-Jew and they grow crops there, it doesn't have kedusha of, of uh, things that belong, uh, you know, kedusha of mitzvah, tzulius, pa'aretz, truma, maser, and shmias uh, should follow suit with that. So that's all part one, right? So Ishmita Deoraisa or Derabanan, there seem to be several ways to uh, to argue it wouldn't be relevant. Either all mitzvot don't apply nowadays, even in Jewish owned land, because you know the Jews gave uh, the Jews uh, didn't conquer it back properly, um, uh, and it doesn't apply forever. Um, so that's one possibility. Or because Shmita is tied to Yovel, and Yovel doesn't apply nowadays, so Shmita doesn't apply nowadays biblically. Or because if we're talking about land owned by non-Jews, there would be no issues of Shemitah or other, other mitzvot, according to the Ramah's view. All of these things are controversial, but all of these are possible ways out. Now, what's a bit trickier is if Jews own the land, then you can't rely on this base Yosef, right? Because it's Jew-owned land. It's not, it's not from a Gentile. So it would have the sanctity of land of Israel for Shemitah. And that, of course, is what the situation was in the late 19th century. You had people who built Moshevim. They built these uh, Jewish settlements in the land of Israel, and it was owned by Jews. So what do you do? You can't rely on the Beis Yosef. That's what everyone had always done, relying on the Beis Yosef. You can't do that if you own the land. Now you have to start saying, well, it's really Daraisa. What are you going to do? And this is where the idea of the Heter Mechira comes in. Let's sell our own land, our own Moshavim, to Gentiles to make it not apply, if that works. We'll talk about that in a second. Does that not work? First, any questions in the chat or verbally or otherwise? Okay, so let's jump in to the question of selling, uh, selling the land of Israel. Now, there's two types of issues we're going to come up with. One is, is it permitted to sell the land of Israel to Gentiles? Um, is Yerushalayim for sale? For those who know Jewish music, um, apparently it's not. 
But um, uh, that's one question. And the other question is going to be, does it work? Does the sale work? Regardless of whether it's permitted, does it actually work? Both of these are going to come up. We're going to look at this right now. In terms of the prohibition against selling the land of Israel, well, there's a Pasuk in the Torah when it talks about conquering the land of Israel in the time of Moshe and Yoshua. Destroy them. Um, we're going to get into the question of ethics and all this. Uh, that, that's a different shear. Uh, but then it says, don't make peace below. Don't give them grace or don't give them chen. What does that mean? The Gemara says it means three different things. The first of which is most relevant to us. Don't give them a dwelling space. In modern Hebrew, chanaya means parking space. Don't give them a parking space in the land of Israel. They shouldn't have any foothold in the land. And then the other two interpretations are don't give them goodwill. Um, and uh, don't give them gifts. So the obvious issue is if the Torah, if it appears there's a biblical prohibition against giving land to Gentiles, and not just giving as a gift, but even selling uh, uh, land in the land of Israel to Gentiles, how could you possibly do that? And sure enough, the Mishnah says uh, this prohibition is in effect. You can't rent even. You can't even rent Gentiles housed in the land of Israel. Certainly not a field. In Syria, which is has semi-sanctity of the land of Israel because it was conquered at some points, but not really the core land of Israel. So in Syria, you can rent houses, um, but you can't rent fields. Outside the land of Israel, you can do anything because this provision is about the land of Israel. Even in Israel, you, you can rent houses, but you cannot rent fields. In Syria, you can sell houses and rent fields. Outside the land, you can sell both. And we pass like Rabbi Yossi. All of that doesn't really matter. Those details don't matter because everyone agrees it's prohibited to sell uh, it's prohibited to sell fields in the land of Israel to Gentiles. So how are you going to sell all the Moshavim, all the Jewish land to the Gentiles to get around this prohibition of Shemitah that's explicitly prohibited by this Pasuk and Dvarim as interpreted uh, by the uh, by the Mishnah here. So how's it going to work? Um, so there's going to be a lot of uh, ways to try to get out of this prohibition. So first, uh, the Prima Gadim, incited by, by our cook and others, they make the argument, and this might work then, it's harder to defend this today, which is nowadays we're among the Gentiles, right? Jews are in exile. There's very few Jews in the land of Israel. There's no losachanim. There's no issue of selling uh, the land of, uh, to Gentiles because there's no Jews in Israel. It's not like we're giving up anything. Um, there still is a mitzvah to settle the land to try to, to try to create a Jewish presence in the land of Israel, but selling land to Gentiles would not be prohibited, uh, says the Prima Gadim. And Rav Kook says similarly, uh, following this, and this is Rav Kook in Shabbat Haaretz. He wrote a whole sefer uh, soon after, a few years after coming to Eretz Israel about Shabbat Haaretz, right? The Sabbath of the land, Shemitah, how to do Shemitah in the land of Israel that embraced the Hatter Mechira with a lot of qualifications and reservations, but did embrace it. And he says, this prohibition against uh, giving uh, giving presence in the land. So he says, first of all, if the sanctity of the land is limited, like we saw before, right? Truma and Maser might not apply in Eretz Yisrael today. Similarly, this prohibition against giving up the land might not apply nowadays. It may only apply Darabanan. So that would be knocking that down a peg. 
Um, but maybe the Rama thinks it is biblical, as we saw. The Rama doesn't have a leniency in that way. So maybe the Rama doesn't agree, but maybe some other people do. So we have two leniencies so far, right? Number one, nowadays, when uh, there's not really a Jewish settlement, at least in the time of Rav Kook, there wasn't much. Maybe it doesn't apply. And as Rav Kook says, maybe uh, the sanctity of the land is uh, is not on the level it was. It's only Durabanan, so the prohibition would also be only Durabanan. And um, and many other, or several other explanations are put forward by Rav Kook. Here, this is going to be Mishpat Kohen, um, his work of responsa, but Simon Nunches uh, talks a fair, a fair amount about the our, our issue, about why it's not, there's no prohibition of selling it to a, a Gentile, and we're going to get some further details. So he says, If there's great pressure, a great need, to sell the land. We're talking, God forbid, about the destruction of the settlement, meaning everyone's going to have to go home or maybe even die. Okay, let's say it's rabbinically prohibited. You're allowed to violate that rabbinic prohibition if the alternative is destroying a whole community. So then how do you solve that? You, you sell chametz. It's just like selling chametz, right? What's the sale of chametz? Um, it's too difficult. How can I possibly get rid of all my chametz? What am I going to do? So uh, I'll sell it to a Gentile. Is it a loophole? Yeah, it definitely seems like it's a loophole. It's not, not, not you know, maybe not uh, the most convincing sale, but it's so difficult to do uh, that in a case of great need, it's permitted. And Dorf Cook says the same thing, but the need here is certainly much greater. And the prohibition is similarly a rabbinic prohibition, given the details of it, and therefore it should be allowed. And therefore he says, Lismoch di'ishme'elim, Another way to knock down this prohibition is to say, we're not selling it to idolaters, we're selling it to Yishma'elim, by which they mean Muslims. Muslims are monotheists. So that's not an idolater. Is, is, that, is it prohibited to sell uh, Eretz Yisrael to uh, Yishma'eli? Says Rukuk, probably it's Asr Durabanan, but not Doraisa. So we can do that Durabanan for the sake of preser- preserving the Yishuv. And he continues, we'll see in a minute, there's a whole question as to whether selling land to Gentiles actually works to remove the halachic uh, prohibitions. Fine, so it's going to be a little complicated if you didn't get up to this piece yet, but basically he wants to say there's two possible reasons why it would be prohibited to sell the land. One would be the prohibition against selling land. The other one would be a prohibition against circumventing the mitzvah of truma, maser, etc. Rukuk wants to say, presumably, the main issue here is not the circumvention issue. That's not really what's prohibited. Maybe it's not great, but it's not what's prohibited. What's prohibited is the, the direct prohibition against sale, which that we can work around. This is a big assumption. People disputed this. Gertoshev, like a resident alien or a semi-citizen, I don't know, a green card. Uh, the original green card, Gertosha, uh, that people can have if they're, they, they, they live in Eretz Yisrael and they abide by the Sheva Mitzvos more or less and they're good citizens, um, then that's a Gertosha. And maybe there's, you know, maybe there's no prohibition or there's only a rabbinic prohibition against selling to a Gertosha. And then in the circumstances of preserving the Yishuv, it would be permitted to give to this Gertosha. Um, there's a whole question as to whether that's, you know, uh, whether Yishmaelim are Gary Toshev or not. Apparently, in, in some of the recent sales, they started selling it uh, to a Ukrainian, uh, you know, a Ukrainian Israeli who's, you know, not Muslim, not Christian, uh, who has some Jewish blood, but isn't halakhically Jewish, 
on the idea that maybe he's even more of a Gertosha. He's really, uh, you know, he's, his first identity is Israeli and not to any religious uh, group. I don't know, it sounds a little complicated. I don't look into it further, but it's an interesting angle. But even back uh, back 100 years ago, the thought was, uh, selling to Ishmael is not as bad. Jason, the uh, selling Christians would be more problematic, arguably. Again, that, you know, people, there are, are uh, certain uh, kulas for defining Christians in certain ways, but certainly if you're going to go for uh, one of the, if you're going to go for a religion that that has the strongest bona fides as not being of the Avodah Muslim is going to be uh, probably at the top of your list. So, and of course, there were many Muslims in the land of Israel uh, then and now. So that's, that at least was the solution until uh, recently. Um, fine. So that's that's one, uh, really two different workarounds, right? First of all, the great need and overriding a Durabanan and the idea that uh, Gertoshev or Yishmaeli is a Gertoshev and that would only be Durabanan. Let's keep going. Uh, uh, and that would be permitted in the case of Durabanan. V'yesh Lomar further answers, Lomanda Amra Badlak Right, if you think, and this was quoted earlier, if you think that the sanctity of the land is not really in place, right? Let's say for Truman Maser and those things, then it's only Durabanam. Maybe the whole rabbinic prohibition is only if there's two different factors. Number one, that you're circumventing the prohibitions, and number two, that you're selling land to a Gentile uh, or renting land to a Gentile. But if the person's not an idolater, maybe then the whole rabbinic enactment doesn't apply at all. So maybe it's even mutter, not just prohibited rabbinically. Again, a few more suggestions he throws out. Right? Maybe it's not just that this fellow claims to be uh, you know, a monotheist, but it's like all Muslims are clearly monotheists. So that maybe makes it a bit better. Um, fine. And right, one more argument he throws out. Yoser Yeshlomar, based on the Ran and Gittin, Al Shikhur Evid Lar Mitzvah, fine. The Mutter Mitaima, the Losechanim Nasar Dafka Kishemechavin the Tovasa. It's only prohibited to give a Gentile land in the land of Israel if you're doing it for their good. Now, the context there is giving a gift by Losechanim, not to give Matnas Chinam, not to give gifts. That's permitted if it's, not for, if, it's, if it's not for the Gentiles' good, but for your own good. And you want to say the same thing should apply for giving land. Right, you're giving away land for your own good, right? For the long-term, uh, uh, for the long-term continuity of the yishuv, not to help out this other person. It's just a, this is just a loophole to get around the, uh, you know, the the shmita issue. So there's like some ironic, you know, uh, we want to sell it. Since the sale is not such a real sale, because really we want to get it back and we really want to have the land long term, that makes it less prohibited to sell. Now, at the same time, Rav Cook also goes in the other direction and says, well, this is, of course, is a real sale in terms of overriding or, or working around the prohibition. So you want to like have your have your uh, karka and eat it, too, so to speak, that um, on the one hand, it's a real sale in terms of circumventing the prohibitions. On the other hand, it's not a real sale and therefore you don't violate the prohibition against selling the land. Um, fine, and right, and then he throws in also, uh, also, he's not going to hang on to it long term. Everyone knows you're getting it back after Shemitah, he can give it back to you, so maybe the Isra doesn't apply in that case. Um, fine, and then he says at the end, this is sort of a meta halachi point, 
Okay, I don't love this because it's sort of trickery. It's a it's a loophole. I don't really like that so much. Throw in this logic with the, you know, uh, Muslims aren't idolaters point. And then we can sell it. Someone has doubts about this. It's not biblically prohibited. It's for, it's for Jews' sake. It's for our own purposes. And therefore, it wouldn't be biblically prohibited. It's rabbinic. There's a great need. We can be lenient. That's Rav Cook's uh, reasoning here in, in a fair amount of detail. Um, and one more point. He writes elsewhere in terms of someone on his Bezdin, Rav Zalman Shach, pointed out if the person you're selling to already has land in Eretz Yisrael, you're not giving them their first foothold. They already have a foothold in the land of Israel. Therefore, selling them land would not be biblically prohibited, only it would be less prohibited, and therefore try to sell land to someone who already has land. So these are all the different workarounds that Rav Cook tries to come up with um, in order to, uh, to avoid, right, to, if you sell the land to the non-Jew, if that works, then you won't have the prohibitions of Shemitah. You'll be able, more or less, uh, to function uh, uh, with some other restrictions. You'll be able to function to some degree uh, in the land. And now one last formulation here. Um, again, a meta-halachic point, and then we're going to jump forward to the next issue. Tachas HaYishuv Hu Inyan Doros. This whole issue of the yeshiv of the of the uh, you know the Jewish settlement in the land, you have to think long term. This is about long, you know, multiple generations, right? And obviously, historically, Rav Cook, Rav Cook's vision has borne out, right? Because like a few random settlements now became a whole country of millions of people. The more Jews settle in the land of Israel, the sooner Mashiach comes. Now you don't have to agree with Rav Cook's messianic assumptions, um, but that he very clearly has them here. The more Jews in Israel, the Holy Land, the sooner the redemption. It's like violating, right? If someone's sick, Gemara uh, Yoma says you can violate this Shabbos and treat their disease in order for them to survive, you know, to live another uh, day or keep another Shabbos, to have them survive for the next Shabbos. Same thing here, violate one Shemitah, so that long-term, we'll be able to keep many more Shemitahs. He goes into more details on the theology here. But it's pretty clear, Rav Cook is not thrilled with this, and we know that from elsewhere. He actually, you know, he supported farmers who personally wanted to not work the land and somehow subsist based on donations. He worked something out for them. He had all sorts of reservations about this, but he thought it was really absolutely necessary. Without this, the Yishuv would fail, and this long-term project of religious Zionism, which Rav Cook was very messianic, would fail. And therefore, again, he worked out all the halachic details. You know, it's a Durabanan and a Sorech and a lot of Durabanans and whatnot. But the broader theology behind it, the, the meta halacha behind it is we have to do something a little not ideal because long term it's going to lead to more ideal things. We have to sacrifice the sanctity of the land short term to have much greater sanctity of the land long term. And right, he says if, if you don't have uh, if you don't have a way around the, the issue here, people aren't going to invest in the land. People aren't going to move to the land. And so this is where the theology comes in for a cook. Um, I didn't quote other sources, but you can guess what the Haredi response is to this view, right? It's, wait a second, what's the value of having Jews in the land if they're not actually keeping the Kedusha of the land? The whole point of being in Eretz Yisrael is to keep, right, it's not for some political reason, it's because of the mitzvahs of Tzolius You live in Israel to keep the mitzvahs. 
And now you're saying you're going to undermine the whole purpose we're there in order to stay there? That's backwards. It's better to not have Jews in Israel than to have Jews in Israel not keeping the mitzvot. That's the, resp- the Haredi response um, to Rev Cook and really two different ideologies here. Um, and in some ways, it's a zero-sum game. Um, but uh, basically, they split the pie in terms of uh, what actually happens on the ground. Um, one great line from the Meshav Dover, who is the Nitziv, who is an early uh, a Zionist on the one hand, but actually an early opponent of the Heter He says someone who gives a whole story, a whole argument as to whether the Yishma'eli is a Ger Toshav and that shouldn't be a problem. Um, and he says, right, he's, this idea that you can sell the land to a, to a Muslim, he says, he ran away from the wolf. He's worried about uh, Shemitah, which is, a, which is and he, he, so he, he ran away from a small problem. He found a bigger problem. He found a lion. We want to get away from this rabbinic prohibition of Shemitah. Nowadays, the Rabban on the Rova Poskin. And then he ended up selling the land, which is a biblical prohibition. Would you avoid a rabbinic prohibition by committing a biblical one? That's a terrible idea. So says the Nitziv. Obviously, the argument is that selling the land can be worked out such that it's not biblically prohibited. It's only rabbinically prohibited, and that's allowed in the circumstances. But this is one of the main arguments against. Okay, but so what? Let's say you did sell the land. Let's say it's prohibited selling land and you did it anyway. Who cares? Why is that an issue? So there's two questions that, that now come up. Number one, in principle, does it work to sell the land to a Gentile in terms of undermining the sanctity? I mean, it's one thing like, you know, Jews were driven out of the land 2000 years ago and non-Jews picked it up. At some point, the land becomes theirs and, and loses its sanctity. But to say that I own this land and can sell it to a non-Jew and then it loses its kedusha, does that actually work? And there's a whole Gemara about this. There is no kidding. There is no way that a Gentile can acquire land in Israel to undo the obligations of Maser. You sell your land to a Gentile, it's still as high of a Maser, even though it's owned by a Gentile. The land is mine, says God. The sanctity of the land is mine. You can't give that up. It's not in your hands. A Gentile who acquires land can dig pits in it. They have ownership in terms of digging pits and whatnot. They have control over it, but they don't have ownership in terms of undoing the sanctity. Um, and Herbalazar sort of says the opposite. This is the whole question how we paskin here, but this is the question, right? Is there, is it possible if you sell the land to a Gentile, do they actually, uh, do, does that actually remove the sanctity? Okay, Maser is one example, but Shemitah is the same example. So let's say that you did that to Mechira. You did the Mechira. Does the sanctity go away or does it remain? Because you can't undo Liharetz, the land, the, the land and its sanctity belongs to God. You can't just undo the sanctity of the land by selling it. That's all question here, how we poskin on this issue. Um, and that could undermine, that could undermine this, depending how one goes in that Gemara. And now another issue, a very creative point um, that's raised by the Chazonish. First, he gets into some of, uh, some of the details um, uh, right, if the Gentile already has land or not, he disagrees with that argumentation because either way you're giving him a greater foothold. So that touches on what we saw before. Um, and then and then he also points out in terms of the permission that Rukuk said that it's, it's ultimately for a Jew's benefit. That doesn't work because that, that loophole, that exception only is true for, um, for giving gifts to Gentiles. That does not apply for selling land. Selling land is bad because um, because Hametzia shall ovi the Avodazar al-Admas Yisrael b'Kinyin sonu l'Theamakol. That's not about whether it's good for the Gentile or good for the Jew or whatnot. There, God hates uh, the presence of idolaters in Eretz Yisrael. That's what he says. As soon as you sell the land, 
um, and maybe not just idolaters, but all Gentiles according to the Chazonish, once you sell the land, you violate it. It doesn't matter what your goals are, what their goals are. So first of all, he rejects two of the main uh, reasons put forward by Rav Cook and others. But then this last line is the most creative and powerful line. He says, uh, Going back to the Tziv, here's a line of argumentation. If you sell through a messenger, right? How do you sell the land of Israel? It's like selling, it's like selling chametz on Pesach before Pesach. Right? Everyone goes to their rabbi, says, here's the chametz I have. You're my representative to sell the chametz to a Gentile. They did the same thing then, right? There was some body of rabbis that was doing the sale. There's all these technicalities to take care of. They all went to the rabbi and they said, okay, you are appointed my messenger, my shliach, my agent to sell my land to a Gentile. Okay, so if you sell, the sale does not take effect. We have a rule. There are no messengers. There are no, there's no agency to violate a prohibition. And if it's prohibited to sell the land of Israel, as we just discussed, maybe it's losachaning. If it's prohibited to sell the land of Israel, if you try to do it, it doesn't, if you try to do it through a shliach, it doesn't work. You appoint an agent, you say to your rabbi, you say to the chief rabbi of Israel, go sell my, my chametz, sell my, or in this case, sell my land to the Gentile before Shemitah. So the prohibition doesn't apply. As when you do that, that agency is not valid because you can't follow what you're saying. Therefore, the whole sale doesn't work because everyone does the sale through a shliach. There's no shlichas. So it's number one, prohibited. Number two, because it's prohibited, it doesn't work. Not, not necessarily because of because the sale can't undo the prohibitions. That may or may not also be true, but because the agency itself is canceled. Uh, a, a, a fascinating point raised here. Now, there are ways of quibbling with it, right? Notice he quotes a specific view. There are some who say that actually, no, the, the whole rule of just pertains to who gets punished for doing the prohibited prohibition. It doesn't undermine the agency itself. That's a whole other discussion. But uh, this is one of the main arguments raised by Haredim today to say not just that it's prohibited through the Hezmachira, but it actually doesn't work because Now, Rav Ze'ev uh, Vitman, he's the, uh, one of the Rav of Tnuva, the rabbi in charge of all sorts of halachic issues with the milk company or uh, dairy company Tnuva in Israel, was also appointed as the uh, Heter Mechira Zar um, maybe 14 years ago, two Shemitahs ago, because the chief rabbis didn't really believe in it because they were Haredi. So they outsourced it to someone, Dati Lumi. In any event, he came up with all sorts of improvements uh, on various details uh, that responded to what other people had said. We didn't get into the details on this, but a couple of the other arguments against the Heter Mechira is, it's a joke. No one takes this seriously. Everyone knows you're just doing it for the halachic reason and you're going to get it back. That's not a serious sale, argument number one. Argument number two, this sale is not actually effective legally. Right? It's, a, it's, it's maybe effective in like Jewish law, but it's not effective on the tabu, on the uh, the listing of land that somehow Israeli arcane law going back to the uh, Ottoman Empire, somehow that's how they decide who owns land, and it's not on the books. So they've improved those things over the year. In terms of the tabu issue, I think in 1979, the Knesset passed a law to say we recognize the sale of land for Shemitah as true under Israeli law. Now, I don't know, I feel like there's probably an interesting case one could raise if you challenge that, and that could get interesting, but at least on paper, that law is in effect. And uh, Ravitman argues that he set up all sorts of other situations to, to uh, avoid some technical loopholes here. So te technical uh, failings, potential failings. Um, without going into the details, the argument was there's Kmiras da Admilea, full, uh, full uh, in, intention on both sides. Everyone knows what they're doing. Everyone's committed to it. They take the sale seriously. So maybe it's not as bad as it used to be. At least that was his goal. Fine. Um, so that, those are a couple of other factors, right? So the various factors with the sale being effective, number one, 
can you undermine sanctity by selling the land? Yesh kenyan afkir or not? Number two, if you have a messenger and it's an avera, if it's, uh, it, do we say ancient avera to undermine the sale? Number three, is it uh, legally recognized? And number four, are the parties actually serious about what they're doing? Debate on all four of these issues, although some of them may have been solved more recently. Um, and now this is just very important in terms of how Rav Cook looked at what he was doing. This is an Igrot Hariyah, letters that he wrote. He said, Have I not said many times, repeated this, This is only a temporary ruling. Only due to the great need and necessity. How would I ever uh, undo this great mitzvah of Shemitah? Unless we were talking about people's lives, literally. That people are going to die because they don't have food and they don't have work. We shouldn't undermine this great settlement at the beginning of its growth. So, and then he says, and this is very important, and this has really affected the story of the Hatamachira. Anytime there's a serious court, in a situation where, where, where in the case of the situation gets better, or there's less difficulties, you can keep Shemitah without selling, without undoing it. We definitely don't want to do the, the sale and enter all these halachic issues if it's not absolutely necessary. And that's why every, right, basically what he's saying is every Shemitah, people should reevaluate whether it's necessary or not. And what you see, the history of this is really fascinating. Early years, it was sort of a halachic issue, different Gedolim, doesn't matter if they were Tzioni or anti-Tzioni, were on both sides of this issue. Um, once you got to the, you know, let's say the founding of the state and the Chazon Ish entering the scene, it basically became a Haredi versus Datilumi issue. Haredim were against the sale, Datilumi were pro the sale. Because you have to support Rukuk, you have to support the Chazon Ish. It was very clear. Uh, and of course, the value, the question of, is there value to having a state that's not perfect on the halacha or sacrificing some halachic details uh, being justified for the larger goals of the state Right? You can see how that would map onto Haredi versus Datilu Um, And then, but because of what Rav Cook wrote here, every Shemitah or two, you see some Datilu rabbis trickling out and saying, you know what? Yeah, it was necessary in the older years. Nowadays, it's actually not as necessary. Maybe we should think of other paths, other approaches, rather than the Heter. Not to undo the Heter because you sort of need it because all the Chiloni farmers are going to otherwise violate. You know, this is better to have that than nothing, but maybe it's better not to rely on this uh, if one has the choice. And this uh, gave rise to the Otsar Beitin approach, which is a very old approach, both old in that it comes up in the Tosefta uh, almost 2,000 years ago, and that Rav Kook proposed it, although it didn't get traction, and the Chazon Ish proposed it, although it didn't get too much traction. But really, the last couple of Shemitahs, it's taken off more. We're not going to read the sources. But basically, it talks about in the time of the Mishnah, what the Right, think about it. Shemitah, the way it works is the, the things that grow, you can't hoard. You can take just to eat, but you can't keep it at home. So what would people do, right? The, the stuff would just rot in the field. So what they would do is there would be a system, the courts would come and would you go to court, you, you go to the Besdin or the representative of the Besdin, you'd say, here's this what I've harvested. They'd say, okay, you can keep three meals. You can take very little. We'll take the rest and store it. And anyone who needs food will get it. Every week they give out the food to people. Um, and they would hire people to do this work of, you know, essentially harvesting and processing the food, not for themselves, but for others. And this system um, has been called the Otsar Beitin, the treasury or the, uh, the storage area of the court. And what, what the system has been 
Um, the Chazunish puts it well here in source 26. Right, the prohibition against processing uh, grapes, uh, stepping on grapes to make wine or any sort of processing of food in a normal way, that's only prohibited for the owners to process the food. Those who found, you know, out in the wild in Shemitah, found olives or grapes or whatever, they can process those things. They got it from Hefker. Uh, the provision against doing harvesting and processing in the normal way, that's only against the owners. So what this means is the court, the court, can then go ahead and process all the food and then uh, it can sell the food. Now, you're not supposed to sell food during Shemitah, so they don't technically sell it. They're not paying, you're not paying for the food, you're paying for the work of the Otsar Bezdin to process it and get it into your hands. And this is, Again, endorsed by Rav Cook, endorsed by Chazunish. There's even, you know, this Otzer Beitin has a nice uh, picture tied to it. But this this has taken off as a as a group called Otsar Haaretz, whatever it is that's taken off as one of the approaches. Now, the problem here is this solves issues of hoarding produce, but it doesn't solve the issue of planting. So, right, vegetables don't really grow on their own. You need to plant your vegetables every year. So Otzer Bezdin works for fruit, but not for uh, not for vegetables. Otzer Bezdin, you need to treat with the sanctity of Shpias. But you can buy because it's not really buying uh, from the from the court. But that doesn't give you vegetables, so that doesn't that only solves some of the problems. Unless you want to go on a no no veg diet, I don't know if that's a thing, but in Israel it definitely is during Shemitah. Um, so there are other solutions as well. Here um, we'll see the the safer of Rav y- uh, Yosef Tzirimon. But first, here's a picture of Rav Yosef Tzirimon. I think from two maybe three Shemitahs ago. Um, what they call matzah minutak. Uh, detached planting. So this is not on the ground. There's some sort of plastic between the ground and these plants. It's like hydroponic, hydroponically grown. The idea being it's not tied to the land, so it doesn't have the sanctity of the land. So it's a different sort of workaround. Uh, it's actually more expensive to do, but it has fewer halachic problems because technically it doesn't have the sanctity of the land of Israel because it's not from the literal land. It's not attached to the ground. There's something blocking between the ground and this matzah minutak, and this uh, for vegetables, especially you can't rely on observation and other issues, other uh, solutions is something that's used. So here, just to summarize, um, I'm not going to read through all of it, but from Rav Ramon Sefer, wonderful Sefer on Shemitah, exists in both Hebrew and English. So he talks about the four systems. I think he puts them in order that he prefers, but I, I can't speak for him, but that's my guess. Um, observation, right, getting ha- uh, through the courts process, buying fruits that you're paying for the labor and not for the fruits themselves. Um, but that really follows an old paradigm. Going back to the Rosefta, that's pr- best approach number one. Approach number two, matzah minutak, detached bedding or you know hydroponic things that aren't t- t- attached to the land. It's a workaround, but you're you're uh, you're not really violating the you know you're not going against their abundance. No one would argue that you're violating anything per se, uh, at least the mainstream views, right? The, the Haredi poskim don't have strong objections to it, and you're supporting Israeli farmers, although again probably less of a profit margin because not so easy to plant hydroponically. Number three, heter mechira, as we discussed at length. And then number four, uh, produce dro- grown by a Gentile. Now this is the most common approach in the Haredi world. Um, not necessarily because they're opposed, I and mean, they're opposed to heter mechira. They're not necessarily opposed to some of these other approaches, but it's complicated, especially because something like Otzer Bezdin, you're supposed to treat those fruits with, fruits with Kedusha Shviya. So you can't like throw it out. You have to really treat it with dignity because it has sanctity. And, uh, you know, it's complicated. You might violate the prohibition, better to just buy uh, from Gentiles, relying on the base Yosef, on the Kesset mission we saw before, 
that if it's actually land that's always owned by a Gentile and they grow uh, vegetables there, it doesn't have the sanctity of Shavuos or sometimes you buy from outside, uh, outside of, of Israel. Um, the Dati Lui community has an issue with this on, you know, on uh, nationalistic grounds. They're saying, you know, we should support our farmers and not, not uh, the Arab farmers. I'm not going to get into the politics of that, but it has both, uh, you know, some state building uh, Zionist assumptions, as well as some political assumptions of supporting what sort of economies is good for the area or not. Again, not my interest to get into that. I'm just reporting that this is uh, some of the issue that comes up between Haredi and Datilomi approaches. And um, I think that's our, our summary of the topic here. But as you can see, take a step back and then we'll take some questions. Uh, some of the challenges here, some of the tensions here um, between wanting to follow halacha as best as one can and wanting to preserve the Yishuv. And preserving the Yishuv means different things today than it did 140 years ago. But there still are some basic parallels. And uh, again, the views, the halachic views on a lot of these issues are, are complicated. A lot of different halachic questions that come up and shifting realities on the ground in a variety of ways. We talked last week about how maybe the necessity of Shemitah is not what it was. It's not like people are going to die, although it would be very bad for the economy uh, and for those farmers. Um, but uh, right, the, the variety of views here, both on Hetamachira and then on some of the alternatives, uh, gives a, a better, uh, a, you know, gives a sense of this bigger picture. Okay, now we'll take questions. Ozzy's asking, why are vegetables the exception to Otzer Bezdin? So they're not quite an exception, just it doesn't really work. Meaning the whole idea of Otzer Bezdin, it doesn't allow you to plant, it allows you to harvest and process. Um, because you're not doing it, the court is doing it. And then you're not buying from the court, you're paying the court for that service, so that's permitted. Vegetables need to be planted. So vegetables for the first few months of Shemitah, last year's vegetables can be harvested, that's not a problem. But then once you get further into the Shemitah year, you, couldn't have, you can't plant vegetables going back a bit before the Shemitah year, so there just won't be, right, annuals, not vegetables. Thank you, Noah. Um, although, you know, they overlap a fair amount. Um, and uh, yes, you won't, at, at some point, you won't get your annuals, you won't get your vegetables, and then you have to figure out matzah minutak, buying from Gentiles, hydroponic, uh, right, the, uh, um, or heter mechira. Those are basically your only options. Yeah, Jason. Um, I was reading Rav Lichtenstein's book, um, article about thoughts about Shemitah and he, he notes that like a, a lot of a lot of people like they like the spirit of the law right of of like taking a break from the the mundane practice of farming right even even if you're abiding by the letter of the law through hydroponics or whatever shenanigans you you want to rip up whip up right like you're not abiding by the the, the spirit of the law um, mm -hmm. And he he notes that a lot of a lot of people who like only eat uh, uh, uh food on shemitah they're really contingent on everyone else who's not doing that because we don't have the capacity to feed everyone uh, on a scale that that can can do that and it's also just very expensive people really can't afford it um, yeah. and he notes that there's kind of an odd condescension from the people who. Like they think they're holier than now. If you if you're if you're if you're eating food that's 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 like like doing like the highest level of like I only eat shemitah in the sixth years in the eighth year. Yeah. So like, do you have any comment on like on like how we could like abide? Because it if you look at the Bible, this right? Is your, the Bible, this is the perfect. This is the perfect leading. So first, we read that piece or, or selections of that piece from Rebbe scene last week. So it's good. No, you captured the spirit of this. And next week, 
we're gonna we're gonna lean in because right last week we we set up the problem. This week we we dealt with sort of the central issue of you know getting the the produce and how do you do it right. And there's no great way of doing it. Ozerbezin is maybe the best. It doesn't work for everything, but you're trying to keep like a classic paradigm. Although it's it's a bit of a workaround. You're like not buying it. Um, but next week we're gonna talk about attempts to find some somehow the broader meaning in shmita despite the differences in economy, et cetera. So that's the perfect uh, advertisement for next week, right? This week was more the problems. And next week, hopefully we'll get to some, again, and the workarounds, but next we'll hopefully get to some solutions that really embrace uh, the broader goals of Shemitah. So yes, thank you, Jason, for that. And now Samson. Yeah, so something I know, like, it seems to me like a lot of a lot of these posts are sort of building house of cards and house of cards. So especially with Rav Cook, like comparing Ketemechira to uh, Mechirat Hametz. Like Mechirat itself, it's, itself, like it's a very like shaky thing. And a lot of people can do like, you really like, really should not do this except like extreme circumstances and give me their house key if you do do it. And then, and also Otsar Redin, it like, I could be analyzing this wrong, but it seems very similar to how Prosbol works, which like we've been doing it for like 1,500, 2,000 years, but like even the Gemara, they're very confused about how Hillel is able to do this. So I guess my two questions are like, one, why are they like so willing to sort of like do this? Like basically build like these house of cards and house of cards. And also like, is there overlap today in terms of like people being very pro one? Like they're like hesitant, are you also going to be hesitant um, for the same reason? Sure. Great, great question. But I think, I, I think the question in some ways is the answer, meaning they, yes, this is not ideal. But at least certainly Rav Cook, the time Rav Cook was talking about, it was not ideal times. The question was, do you let the whole settlement die because of these, uh, or do you find some loophole, not ideal, but some way to keep going? Now, is there, you know, how do you compare that to selling chametz? Well, I think for most people, uh, again, if you own a company, the original hector of selling chametz was a company. And nowadays, like anyone, you have like three granola bars, like, I don't want to get rid of my three granola bars, I have to sell my chametz, right? I think Usually, if it's reasonably easy to do it, you should do it. Uh, get rid of it instead of selling it, right? So I, I think the same thing goes here. Now, would they have would they establish hetermechira today if the question came up anew today? Maybe not, because the need is different. Once you have it in place, it's hard to say we're going to get rid of this heter when you know that like you know half the farmers or most of the farmers are going to violate halacha. It's hard to get rid of it. But yeah, no one's pretending that this is ideal. Right. It might be the best of all the bad solutions, but certainly it's not ideal. That's so that's on question one. On question two, is there correlation among people who oppose different loopholes? Yes, I can say I think uh, since we, we talked about Rav Lichtenstein, uh, my understanding is Rav Lichtenstein was not the biggest fan of all the loopholes. So selling chametz, selling the land, um, the whole host of other things that are leniencies that came up, you know, for historical reasons. And uh, if you don't need it, you shouldn't rely on it. So I think there, there is a certain attitude there again, but that's not the only factor, right? Because here, like, as opposed to selling chametz here, like the nation building piece is relevant. Um, so it's not the only factor, but it is a factor that correlates across uh, these laws, 100%. Yeah, Ozzy, uh, he didn't believe in legal fictions, maybe it's a bit strong because the Gemara does discuss them, Marim and al but at least in, in uh, many cases, he was very, very opposed, uh, right? He definitely was uh, among the most... Uh, the most uh, skeptical of uh, legal fictions. Yeah, Jason. Uh, when does the Gemara call something a legal fiction? Like what length? Like I'm guessing it didn't call it a legal fiction, the right? Term, like, the term is ha'arama, ha'arama, which literally means trickery, 
but often is translated as legal fiction because that it seems to correlate in usage to legal fiction. Um, but yeah, it's where you, you know, something really should have a certain status. It's inconvenient or impossible to resolve with that status. So you use do some work around, usually sell to a Gentile uh, to get around it. The, you know, the joke is like, you go to the rabbi, you say, can I smoke? The rabbi says, no. You say, well, what if I sell my lungs to a, to a Gentile? So that's the, you know, it, it's become a bit of a trope, but if it works, it works, right? So, and if you're looking for a loophole and you're okay with loopholes under the circumstances, then you go there. Um, uh, I'll take John's point and then we'll get back to Jason. John, yeah, Tanakh says it's hard, but requires it anyway, makes Hetemachir weaker, 100%. And I think we mentioned that last week. Um, I think the difference is instead of, you know, you sort of come in with this and this is the, the framework with the new Yishuv, it was, you know, they wanted to build the land and this is somehow an issue that came out of left field somehow. I don't know, maybe the, I don't know if uh, Rothschild was uh, planning on, on having work around when he came or not, but, uh, and, and somehow the energy behind the need to build, uh, to build uh, a Yishuv, as we saw in Rav Cook, overrode that. But yeah, 100%. Um, a takana, as opposed to legal fiction, so takanos are usually enactments of new laws. You can't, it doesn't really work, formally speaking, to make a takana to undo a deoraisa or even undo a derabanan. Um, I mean, in some loose sense, you can call that an enactment. But I think uh, if you're trying, to, if you have a law on the books that you want to work around, you can call it a workaround, you can call it a, uh, a legal fiction. But you have to have some mecha mechanism by which you work around it. In this case, selling to a Gentile. The other mechanism, as I think Samson pointed out, um, for both loans and for Otzer Bezdin is to somehow have the court take the, take the role so that the people, uh, the individuals aren't involved. Um, but great. Yeah. Other, uh, any final questions? Uh, yes, Jason. When, when what context does the Gemara use like uh, this idea of a harama? So I, I just mentioned it quickly before. The ma'arim and al habechoros. The Gemara seems to clearly endorse this. When you have uh, there's a mitzvah of bechor, you're supposed to give your first firstborn animal to the bring in the mikdash or give it to the kohen. Um, nowadays we can't really the kohen can't really eat it uh, properly because we don't have a mikdash. So what do you do? So we say ma'arim al habechoros. What you should do is sell a fraction of your animal fetus to a gentile. That way, when it's born, it's not your firstborn animal. It's partially Gentile-owned firstborn animal. Therefore, it's not eligible for Bechor. Therefore, you don't have to deal with this problem. Now, that's a case where there's no, like, you want to be Machmir. What are you going to do? Have the animal be born and have it sit around until you mess up? Like, there's no upside. So that's why the Gemara says, go ahead and do and do Ha'arama. Um, um, but yeah, but that would work. And Prusbal, uh, again, in the loose sense, you can call it a Takana, but it's it's a workaround. It's somehow having the loan be collected ahead of time such that it doesn't need to, uh, uh, you know, somehow you're, it's a workaround rather than you're not really undoing it directly. Ayin Shem, the Gemara is a talk about Afal Pisha Einbo and whatnot. Shalote Meshmita Meshamet Bo doesn't work. So you can't say you're directly going against the Torah. You have to say you're working around it with this, uh, with this uh, principle. But we can discuss that more another time. Um, any final questions? Okay, if not, uh, thank you all and uh, Noah. Okay, thank you, Rabbi Zakir. Who who would have thought that the nuts and bolts of Shemitah would be so much fun uh, on a Sunday night? Um, a number of folks mentioned Fruzbol. A little reminder that Monday night, uh, Rabbi Leah Sarna is giving her 
Gamarish here on the topic of Prisbol. It's been going really well. You can catch up in our multimedia library on our website and join us tomorrow night. We have classes every day except Friday and Saturday, so feel free to join any or all that might interest you. And we look forward to seeing you again next week. And I don't know, maybe I'll uh, work in a little mini sheer about perennial vegetables because some folks uh, maybe need an education about them. But be well, everyone. <laughs>